Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, whether you're joining us in person, whether you're joining us online today uh, for the first Sunday of 2021 and kickoff of a new series today. Uh, before we jump into that, um, let's take a minute and pray and invite God to be part of this with us. Father, thank you uh, that we get to worship today in uh, whatever way we're doing that. And uh, thank you, Father, just for a new year. Uh, just we move in to this new year, Father, we wanted to pray for some of the things that made uh, this previous year so difficult in so many ways. Um, Father, we pray for wisdom, for how to best navigate COVID and the concerns that that raises for us as individuals and families and a church. We pray for our leaders as uh, they are making decisions for your hand on that. We pray for people in our congregation right now um, who are struggling, who are sick, for your hand of mercy and healing on their bodies. Uh, Father, we pray for um, just the, the, the political drama that has been part of this year. And God, you instruct us to pray for our leaders, whether we voted for them or not. And so whether we voted for him or not, we want to pray for Joe Biden and uh, for his cabinet and his administration. Uh, Father, you tell us that you hold the heart of the king in your hand. And we pray that you would shape um, the heart of this leader. Father, we just pray for just so much of the racial tension that has taken place over the course of this last year. And um, we just pray for responsibility and for justice and for healing. And Father, just today, as we look at your word and we begin this new series, we pray that you would be part of this, that you would speak truth to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, again, it's the first Sunday of the new year, and I don't know about you guys, but th there are a whole host of things that I could have done without in 2020, all right? Uh, just name a few, I and mean, we prayed about a few. I, like, I, I could have I done without all the political drama. I'd have been just fine if we'd never had any of that. Uh, I could have done um, without you know, the racial tensions that we experienced over the course of the last year, I could have for sure done without COVID-19. Um, there's just part of me that is like, hey, I've had enough of some of the drama that we went through over the course of the last year. And yet, of all the things that made 2020 kind of miserable, I think the thing that um, I found to be the most frustrating and I could have done without the most was just all of the division and the polarization that just seemed to dominate our culture and our communities and even our churches and even our families over the course of this last year. Like, I, 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 I'm only 50, which I get depending on how old you are. You respond to that differently. Some of you are like, brah, you are ancient, right? I get it. And some of you are like, kid, you're not even, I mean, you're still wet behind the years, you know? I've, I've got socks in my drawer older than you. And I, again, whatever, all right? I have never seen it like what I've seen in the last year. The kind of division that we witnessed in 2020, the polarization, the, 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 the in, just, I've watched institutions on both sides work so hard to fuel that. I've watched people just get so angry with the other side. I, I, in 2020, I've watched folks just 
so entrenched in their positions. Of all the things that made that year just miserable, for me, the division, the polarization was the worst. So I don't know about you, but I am glad it is finally 2021. Amen? Yeah. Now, as fun as it is to say that, here's a problem with that thinking. All the stuff that made 2020 miserable didn't go away just because it's 2021. Like the idea, it's, you know, it's 2021, you can't catch Rona now. It's 2021, we're all on the same political page. It's 2021, we all agree on issues regarding race. It's 2021, we are all going to get along just fine now. That's just silly. Like the, the very things that divided us in 2020, they are still here in 2021. The very things that put unity at risk in 2020, they've come right here with us into 2021. When it comes to unity, I don't know if I have ever seen a time where unity was more at risk. Again, in our families and in our churches and in our communities and in our culture at large, I have never seen a time where unity is more at risk than it is today. And I've never seen a time where we needed unity more than we need it today. And yet, you can wonder, after the year we just had, like, is unity even possible moving forward? Is unity j just a thing of the past? In the year and the years to come, is this just a fantasy? It's something that just, it's escaped us. The, the, the issues are just too big anymore. Is unity even possible anymore? I really believe it is. If we want it badly enough. And I believe that it is because through a guy named Peter, God himself tells us that it is. And he doesn't just tell us that it's possible. He actually tells us how to achieve it. See, in, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter pens this incredibly dense sentence. And in that sentence, Peter just speaks to us about division and unity in ways that are so relevant to our lives and to our world today. As he begins, Peter says this. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Now, first Sunday of the year, we'll have a pop quiz in church. If you get the answer wrong, you don't have to worry. It's not going to send you to hell. Um, but Ryan Williams will not respect you if you get this answer wrong. So it's a lot, lot on the line here, all right? Who's the audience Peter's talking to? Thank you very much. It's right there. It's not that hard. The answer right on the screen, all right? It's all of you. Now, how inclusive is Peter's all of you? It's pretty inclusive. All of you means all of you. Although, granted, Peter is speaking to some of us directly and some of us indirectly. See, when, when Peter wrote this, he's writing to the church. So, so if, if whether I'm online, I'm in person, if I'm here today and I'm genuinely following Jesus, Peter is speaking directly to me. What he is going to say today and in the weeks to come, if I am serious about following Jesus, I have to take what Peter is going to say seriously. At the same time, though, if I'm not a follower of Jesus, well, then to some degree I'm off the hook. 
Peter isn't speaking directly to me. However, I will say this, what he's going to say to us, it is still true whether I'm following Jesus or not, and it is still relevant, and it, will still, it still has the ability to impact my life and my relationships significantly. It just, it, it applies to me indirectly, if you would. So, so as Peter begins, he says, all of you should be of one mind. Now, what, what does Peter have in mind here when he says be of one mind? Well, that what we have here is translated as one mind. It's the Greek word hamaphranos. Hamaphranos. Which should sound familiar because it's where we get our word harmonious from. And it's actually a compound word. So you have two words that are brought together and made into one. And the two words are the words same and mind. So as Peter gets started here, he's basically saying, hey, I want all of you to be of the same mind. Mind. I want all of you to be of one mind. Be like-minded. Peter says, finally, as you come out of 2020 and move into 2021, I want all of you to have one mind. Now, when we hear that, the temptation is to think, okay, that sounds nice, Peter, but you have no idea what 2020 was like, man. Like you have no idea the, 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 the politics and the, the, you know, the, the issues with race and COVID and everything else that we face. If you had any idea what we just went through in the last year, you wouldn't be so bold as to tell us that all of us need to be like-minded of one mind, be united in mind. That like, I'm not sure if unity is possible today after the kind of issues we've faced in the last year. And while I get the temptation to say that or to think that, to let myself do so would be to reflect ignorance on my part. It would be to reflect ignorance about what Peter has been writing and talking about up to this point. See, again, we're, we're in 1 Peter 3, chap, chapter 3, verse 8. You know what comes before 1 Peter 3, 8? The first part of chapter 3 and then chapter 2. And you know what Peter's talking about in 2 and 3 before he gets to verse 8 there? Let me tell you. The beginning of verse, uh, the beginning of chapter two, Peter's writing to Christians about how they should interact with the government. And then at the end of, of chapter two, Peter writes to slaves about how they should respond to the injustices that they have endured. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter's writing to, to husbands and wives about how to interact with each other in the midst of marriage, especially when marriage is difficult. And then Peter says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Now, th that, that word finally in Greek grammar, it is meant to connect what Peter has been writing about to what he's about to say next. So it's tempting to be like, well, Peter has no idea what we've been going through and the kind of issues we're up against when he tells us to, 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 to you know, like try and achieve unity. But the fact of the matter is, Prior to writing verse 8, Peter has been talking about the very kind of things that we are facing. He's been talking about politics and government and how we interact with them. And he's been talking about issues regarding race and justice and, and, and slavery. And depending on how cynical you've become about marriage, he's even talking about a deadly virus, right? And then after talking about these things, Peter says, finally, after... Let me take what I've been talking about and let me connect it with what I'm about to say next. Finally, 
all of you should be of one mind. The very things that we are facing, Peter's addressing those. To which we might say, well, how is that possible? How in the world can we even do that? How, how can we possibly achieve unity and one-mindedness in a culture that seems so intent on division and polarization? And Peter says, I'll tell you how. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Here's what you do. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. See, Peter's telling us here, unity is not impossible. Instead, unity is possible even in the midst of the, the, the politics that we've gone through. Unity is possible even in the midst of the racial tensions. Unity is possible even for the, the vacciners and the never-maskers. Unity is possible in our marriage, in our relationship with our, our, our kids and our parents. Unity is possible at work. Unity is possible at school. Unity is possible right here at church. Peter's got this idea that it is. See, according to Peter, the pathway to peace is found in how we respond to one another in the midst of the issues that would divide us. And in verse 8, we're going to see, as Peter just unpacks this thing, we're going to see that the pathway to peace, it is found in how we respond to one another right in the midst of the issues that are dividing us. See, the problem isn't that peace isn't possible. The problem is that we don't want it badly enough to walk the path of peace that Peter's going to point us to. The problem is that for so many of us, we have prioritized other things above unity. And so unity escapes us. And we settle for division. After the last year we've been through, like, have you had enough of that yet? Hey, have you had enough of, of, of the, just the, the forced-fed opinions? Have you had enough of the anger and the retribution? Have you had enough of the inactivity and the empty words? Have you had enough of the selfishness and the power grabbing? Have you had enough of the division that dominated the last year we've just gone through? If you have, Peter's saying, hey, there's a different path you can walk. And it'll lead to peace. And it can bring the kind of unity that we so desperately need. He's pointing us to something different. So Peter says, hey, I want all of you to be of one mind. And we say, how in the world could we possibly do that? And Peter says, start here. Sympathize with each other. Now, the Greek word that we have translated here is sympathize. It is the Greek word sympathes which again should sound familiar. And again, it's a, it's a, uh, a compound word. And it's, it's made up of the words to feel and with. 
So Peter's literally saying, hey, I want all of you to feel with each other, to feel together, to commiserate with one another. What Peter has in mind when he tells us to sympathize with each other, Paul kind of illustrates for us elsewhere in the New Testament where, where Paul will say things like, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Or as he talks about the church and he refers to it as the body, Paul will say, if, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. See, with sympathy, the idea is that I am working to understand and feel what you are feeling. I'm working to understand and feel your joy and your sorrow, your, 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 your fear and your hope your pain and your pleasure. I'm working to understand and feel what you are feeling. That's sympathy. So, let's, let, let's talk about this in some really practical and some really uncomfortable ways. So, so let's say we're sitting across the table from each other. And I voted for Biden and you voted for Trump. Rather than me railing on you about how you hate brown people and you're, you're out to break up families and you put kids in cages, and you railing on me about how I supported infanticide through a pro-abortion platform and candidate, sympathy has the two of us working to truly understand and feel what the person sitting across the table from us is feeling. Well, let's say we're sitting across the table from each other. And when it comes to the issue of race, I believe personal responsibility is the foremost factor to be considered. And you believe that social justice is the foremost factor. Rather than me you know, ranting at you about how you've, you, you've bought into this victim mentality and become dependent upon the government, and you ranting at me about how in my silence I become complicit in racism, Sympathy would have the two of us genuinely working to try and understand and feel what the person sitting across the table from us is feeling. Or let's say when it comes to COVID, I don't want to leave the house until there's a vaccine and you don't want to wear a mask and we're sitting across the table from each other, which when you think about it, odds of us sitting across the table from each other are slim to none, but work with me, all right? Rather than me, Ranting about how you're selfish and you're ignorant and you don't get silence and you, science and, and you're ranting at me about how I don't get science, science and, and, and I'm wasting my life and hiding in fear. Sympathy would have the two of us prioritizing, trying to understand and feel what the person sitting across the table from us is feeling. This is what sympathy does. Now, just stop and think for a minute. With the issues that have dominated the landscape of our culture over the last year, how, how would it impact the conversation if the people sitting across the table from one another, when it came to those issues, if they truly prioritized trying to understand and feel what the person sitting across the table from them was feeling? Or think about your marriage, or your relationship with your parent, or your kid, or your sibling, or your classmate, or your coworker, or your neighbor, or the Yahoo you run into at the line at the store, who you are in conflict with. 
How would that conversation go differently if one or both of you truly prioritized understanding and feeling what the person sitting across the table from you was feeling? I mean, it doesn't take a genius. It doesn't take any kind of social scientist to figure out, like, that would be revolutionary. That could dramatically impact our homes and our communities and our churches and our country at large. I'm telling you, Peter's on to something here. And yet, as true as that might be, so many of us, we, we think, okay, yeah, all right, sure. Some, some sympathy go a long way when it comes to conflict, but like, who does that anymore? Let's just be honest. When it comes to conflict, we dig in our heels. We work to prove the other person wrong and ourselves right. We're, we're thinking about like, how to respond to them. They're still speaking, and we're forming our objection in our heads. We're, we're intent on correcting the mistaken ideology that's driving their feelings. Sure, some sympathy would be nice, but I mean, for goodness sake, who does that anymore? And I would just say, guys, when did thoughtful sympathy become so revolutionary? And when did intolerant obstinance become so ordinary? Like, who lives in the sympathy like Peter's talking about? People who are serious about following Jesus do that. And so Peter says to us, hey, you, you're really serious about unity? It starts by sympathizing, by working to understand and feel what the person sitting across the table from you is feeling. Now, before, before we move on, let's deal with some objections. Because some of you, as, as we're talking about this, the objections are just welling up inside of you. And if that's the case, I'm not mad at you. I get it. They're welling up inside of me as well. But some of us, we hear this and we go, okay, sure, Peter's calling us to this. But like, if I sympathize with that person, they're going to take my kindness for weakness. Or if I sympathize with that person, somehow I'm agreeing with or validating what they're feeling. Or if I sympathize with this person, their error is going to go unaddressed. Like the, 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 the mistaken ideology that's driving their feelings is never going to get corrected. And here's the thing. If, if you have those objections, I'm not mad at you. I get it. Part of me has them as well. So let, let's address them in a couple of ways. First of all, for some of us, we, we just need to be honest. The objections are just a smokescreen for what's really behind our response to people. Our desire not to give sympathy. For, for some of us, this isn't about the objections. The objections just make it sound nice. They just sanitize the fact that I'm more concerned about winning the raging debate than I am how you feel. The objections sound nicer than I care more about being right and you being wrong than I care about understanding you. I've placed a higher priority on winning than I have on unity. For not all of us, but some of us, the, the objections are just a smokescreen. We just might as well be honest about it. Now, now, for others of us, the, the, the objections really are, they're sincere. 
And, and, if, and if that's the case, I, again, I get those objections. But I would suggest to you that Jesus demonstrates to us that we hold them in error. That, that it is possible to be sympathetic and not be weak. To be sympathetic and not, not validate this person's feelings or agree with them. That it's possible to be sympathetic and not leave error unaddressed. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus and sympathy. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. So, so the writer of Hebrews is telling us here that as Jesus comes to earth, dwells among us, that Jesus, that when it comes to temptation, specifically temptation to sin, that Jesus, he is able to sympathize with us. Same word that Peter's using. He's able to sympathize with us because Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we have. So here's what I want you to do. Call, call to mind an area where you struggle with temptation. Call, call to mind an area where you, you, you have this pull to do something that you know you shouldn't do it, but you want to do it anyway. And you know, it's, you know it's, it's not good for you. It's not good for the people around you. It's not good for your relationship with God. Sometimes you want to do it. Sometimes you don't want to do it. Sometimes you resist it to your pride. Sometimes you, you give in any way to your shame. But, but it's there, right? You, you can, whatever your thing is, lust, greed, you know, you're, you're selfish with your spouse. You lose it with your kids. You get something juicy and you just can't wait to tell somebody. You're going to be in trouble, so you try and lie your way out of it. Whatever your thing is, bring it to mind. Now, share it with the person behind you. I'm kidding. All right. So, but bring your thing to mind. Part of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that as Jesus leaves the glory of heaven and comes here to earth, part of what that means is he subjects himself to being tempted the way that you are tempted. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that when it comes to the temptation that you wrestle with personally, Jesus can sympathize with you. That he understood and felt what you feel when it comes to temptation. Now, fascinating side note on this, a little bit of a, a theological nerdy rabbit hole, but it's relevant to what we're talking about. When it comes to temptation and sin, Jesus gets it in all of the worst ways and in none of the best ways. Like when it comes to, to, to the allure, the pull, the draw to do something that should not be done, Jesus gets it. He felt that. He understood that. Like all of the, 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 the con games that sin plays with us, the, the, the big promises on the front end, the lousy delivery on the back end. When it comes to sin, Jesus understood and felt what we feel when it comes to sin and temptation on the front end of the deal. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he is dying, as he is paying for the sin of humanity, 
Jesus understood the, the pain and the sorrow and the guilt and the judgment and the wrath that comes with giving in to temptation on the back end. As he is receiving what we deserved on the cross as he's paying for our sin. So, so Jesus understood and felt what we feel on the back end of temptation. But when it comes to the middle of temptation, that, that brief sense of relief you get when you give in, the, the, the season where sin is fun, and there's a, there's a season of pleasure that comes with it. Because Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, Jesus got all of the worst of temptation and none of the best of temptation. And yet he is able to sympathize with us. He understands and feels what we feel when we are tempted. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to our objections. We'll be like, hey, you know, I, 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 I don't want to sympathize with that person because that's going to make me feel weak. When Jesus sympathized with us in our temptation, did that make Jesus weak? Like, I'm tempted to cuss here in church. Heck no. Heck no. That, that Jesus leaving the glory of heaven, dwelling here among us, enduring what we endured so that he could relate to us, that did not make him weak. That is incredible strength. L listen, when you sit at the table with another person and you humble yourself, and you place a greater priority on understanding and feeling what that person is feeling than you do on proving them wrong and yourself right, there's incredible character and self-control demonstrated in that. That doesn't make you weak, that makes you strong. Yeah, but that person's going to mistake my kindness for weakness. Maybe they will. So What? Listen, whose approval are we working for? Theirs or Jesus's? Are we worried about the approval of God or the approval of men? To be sympathetic, that doesn't make you weak. That makes you the strongest person at the table. Or, or this idea that, you know, the, the, when Jesus sympathized with us in temptation to sin, does, does that mean, like, Jesus agrees with or validates our sin? Again, it's just ridiculous. You, you read the New Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament, when it comes to genuine sin, Jesus did not validate sin. He did not agree with sin. To sit across the table from someone and work to understand and feel what they are feeling, that doesn't mean that I agree with what they're feeling. It doesn't mean that I am validating what they are feeling. Just like Jesus sympathized with us and our temptation without agreeing with our sin, we can sympathize with someone and not necessarily agree with them. And this idea that, that you know, if I sympathize with someone, I'm going to leave error unaddressed. Jesus did not leave our error unaddressed. It's just Jesus dealt with it differently than we want to deal with a person who has mistaken ideology. Jesus addressed our error. He addressed it himself at his own expense. Jesus addressed our error as he hung cursed on a tree in our place. And, and for those of us 
who are so intent on correcting the mistaken ideology of this person who is sitting across the table from us. We've got to understand that person doesn't care one bit what we have to say. Even if we are right and they are wrong. They don't care and they will not hear us. If, if the true goal is to correct the mistaken ideology, that will never happen until that person senses that we genuinely care about what they feel. So again, I appreciate the objections, but I would argue Jesus addresses all of them. So Peter says, hey, all of you, as you come into 2021, be of one mind. How in the world do we do that? Sympathize with each other. So the question then becomes, okay, how do we be sympathetic? Like, what can we do? If this is not something that comes natural to us, what can we do to increase our sympathy quotient? I'd recommend a few things. First of all, for, for some of us, we need to change our priorities. So for some of us, and again, not all of us, for some of us, we need to understand being sympathetic cost Jesus. There was a price he paid in order to sympathize with us. If we're going to be sympathetic, it will cost us. In order to be willing to pay that price, priorities need to get rearranged. I have to, I have to put a higher priority on unity than I do being right. I have to place a higher priority on how you feel than getting you to see things my way. I have to, I have to place a higher priority on being one-minded than correcting your mistaken ideology. Some of us, our priorities are upside down if sympathy is ever going to happen in our lives, and we have to change the priorities. For, for others of us, the thing we need to do if we're going to increase the, the sympathy quotient is we, we need to we need to work at listening. Like when we sit down with this other person, the goal needs to be to truly listen to what they are saying and understand it. This is where active listening comes in. And I, I know we've talked about this in the past. We're going to talk about it today. We will talk about it again in the future. Active listening is when I sit down to speak with you. My number one goal is to hear and understand you. I'm not thinking about, again, I'm not thinking about all the ways you're wrong as you're speaking. I'm not forming my rebuttal as you're talking. I'm not waiting for you to take a breath so I can jump in and prove to you you're wrong and I am right. I'm trying to hear you and understand you. And again, it doesn't mean I, dis, it doesn't mean I agree with what you're saying. I, I can hear and understand you and still disagree. I can hear and understand you and you could still be wrong. But the goal is I want to hear and understand what you're saying. Some of us, we need to work at listening. And then some of us, we need to work to try and put ourselves in the other person's shoes, if you would. To, to just go, like, like, what is it like to be this person? What is it this person's feeling? And what would it be like to be them? So, so like, we'll, we'll take COVID. It's probably the easiest one. If you're COVID cautious and I'm COVID courageous, and I'm sitting across the table from you. I'm, tr I'm genuinely trying to understand, okay, what would it be like to be the person or to, to live with or to love somebody, have somebody close to me who's severely immunocompromised and, and for who all this, the stats and the figures are different? 
How would I feel? How would I approach this whole thing if that was the case for me? Or if the roles are reversed and, and I'm COVID cautious and you're COVID courageous and I'm sitting across the table from you, I'm trying to go, okay, what would it be like to be this person to have somebody in my life who, who I live with, who I, I love dearly, who they, they wrestle with anxiety and depression. And, and, and the isolation that has come with COVID has exacerbated that to such an extent where suicidal ideation is regularly a part of what they are wrestling with. How would I feel to be that or to have someone who I love, who that's what they're going through? What, what does it look like for me to put myself in that other person's shoes? So Peter, again, he says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. We say, how in the world can we do that? Peter says, say, start here. Sympathize with each other. See, again, the problem again is not, is unity possible anymore? The, the, the issue isn't, is, you know, is COVID or race or politics? Are these, these are bigger than unity. Now, the, the issue is, do we want unity badly enough to walk the path of peace that Peter is calling us to? See, unity is possible. Uni the, the, kind of, the kind of unity in, in a few weeks we're going to see Jesus pray that we would achieve as his church. It's possible if we're willing to walk the path of peace that Peter's pointing us to. It can be achieved in how we respond to one another in the midst of the issues that would divide us. And as we begin, Peter says, hey, respond this way. Be sympathetic. Work to feel and understand what that other person's feeling. Would you stand with me, church? Before we continue in worship this morning, we're going to take a, uh, just a few minutes and pray. And... Just today, as we've talked about sympathy, if you know, you've got room to grow there. And God knows I've got room to grow there. We're going to pray. And I just want to invite you to just pray silently. And just commit yourself to God to live more fully into that. And if you're with us today, whether you're, whether you're in person, whether you're with us online... And the Jesus who left the glory of heaven and came here to earth, who experienced sin and temptation as you did, yet without giving in, if you've never said yes and surrendered all of who you are to that Jesus, but you know you need to and you know you're ready to, again, I would, I would love just to pray silently with you and invite you to do that. So let's pray together and then we will, we will worship some more. Father, thank you just for Peter, just for this incredibly dense sentence that he has penned that is so relevant to our lives and our world today. Father, for some of us, as we think about the issues that we are struggling with and the people who we are struggling with them over, if we are honest, We haven't been very sympathetic. We haven't worked very hard to understand and feel what that other person is feeling. 
if we're just realistic, we know that would make such a big difference in that conversation and in that relationship. So God, we want to ask that you would meet us in this, that you would help us to change our priorities, that you would help us to listen, that you would help us to really prioritize understanding and feeling what that person is feeling. We pray for unity in the midst of that, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, and in our culture. Father, for some of us today, just we just need to confess we need Jesus. Jesus who came and was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. God, we confess we, have, we are so far from that. We have sinned in so many ways. God, forgive us, please. Thank you that Jesus came. That he's able to sympathize with us and because of what he did for us, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, knowing we will find forgiveness and help in our time of need. We just put our faith in Jesus, in his life, his work, his death, his resurrection. We surrender all of who we are to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.